Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read our text, and then we'll pray together and continue worshiping Christ, continue marveling at his glory, continue marveling at his grace, and consider the amazing truth that God would love us and send his son for us. Can it be that God would do that for us? He has. He has. Luke chapter 9, and our text this morning will be verse 37 through 45. Luke 9, 37. This is the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we recognize that in Christ there is glory. In Christ there is grace. In your word there is truth. It exposes our need and it exposes also and exalts the sufficiency of our Savior. Lord, for those among us today who may not have seen that glory, who may not have grasped the magnitude of the grace of Christ, those who maybe cannot sing at the top of their lungs that we are amazed at your love and that we are confident in your grace, I pray that today you'd give them a vision of Christ, a sight of him that would draw them to faith and repentance. And Lord, for we who do know you, I pray that as we look to Christ again, that you would strengthen our faith again. You administer to our weakness again, so that we might love you and worship you as we ought. Amen. In order to uh, really jump in and understand this story, this scene, it's very important that we remember what's happened immediately before this. And over the last two weeks, we've not been in Luke, so I'd like to just refresh your memory. If you look up the page right before our text, there was this incredible scene on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Peter and James and John were with him, and and they witnessed, they beheld for a few moments the unveiling of the glory of Christ. They saw him shining like the sun. They saw Moses and Elijah there with him, and they were overwhelmed by what they experienced. It was a vision of the glory of the Son of God, the glorious Christ. They had seen it. They had been swallowed up by this cloud that descended, and they had even heard the voice of God The voice of the Father saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then it was over. The mountaintop experience was temporary, and it was time to head back down the mountain. They couldn't stay there. 
As much as Peter and the others maybe wanted to, I mean, Peter said, hey, I have an idea. Let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I want to capture this moment and stay right here. But ministry had to move on. But here's the thing. Even though they went down the mountain, Jesus didn't stop being glorious. He was still the same Christ. He still possessed the same glory. He was still the very son of God clothed in human flesh, just like he was on the mountain. What they saw on the mountain would be veiled once again. It wouldn't be as readily apparent in terms of that intensely bright glory shining from the face of Christ. But there are other ways that the glory of Christ continues to be seen. The glorious Christ on the mountain was coming down, he was descending down, as he does, to live and to walk and to work among sinners and sufferers. And for those who have eyes to see, that glory was still on display. And this is a means to strengthen our faith. Friends, this text, the whole purpose of it is to show us how great Christ is. This is about the greatness and the glory of Christ. And the glorious Christ, if there's one idea we could boil this down to, the main idea today is that the glory of Christ, the glorious Christ is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our faith because of who he is, because of what he does. The glorious Christ is worthy of your faith and mine. And in our text today, this glory is seen in four ways. Four ways that the glory of Christ is seen. It's not seen in the same way that it's seen on the mountain. But nevertheless, the glory of Christ can be seen in this text. And the first way that this glory is seen, number one, his glory is seen in contrast to human failure. That's one way we see the glory of Christ. It is seen in contrast to human failure. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, and also here in Luke, all three authors are very intentional to connect this event to the previous scene, to the transfiguration. Luke says that it was the very next day, verse 37, on the next day, the next day specifically when they had come down from the mountain. So he, he wants to pair this. He wants to set it right next to the transfiguration. And I believe that the Gospel authors do this so that we can see the contrast so that we can see what's different. Jesus comes down the mountain, down from the glory, and he comes down into darkness, into the brokenness of, of a mess that's going down at the foot of the mountain. And he could have stayed. I mean, he could have stayed on the mountain. He could have basked in the glory, just like he could have stayed in heaven and never bothered to put on human flesh and be born as a baby and, and live 33 years and then be crucified. But that's not what Jesus did. He rolled up his sleeves and he heads down, setting aside for a moment that glory. And he gets to work. And as he comes down the mountain, you, you almost get a little bit of whiplash. I mean, think about the highs that we see on the mountain and the lows that we see at the bottom. The scene changes so drastically from that ecstatic and exalted experience. There was glory on the mountain, but down below we find horror and we find grief as this child is suffering. The disciples had gotten a taste of the kingdom on the mountain, a taste of the very kingdom of God. But down below, it's the powers of darkness that still seem to be reigning. Their faith had been sight on the mountain. They'd literally seen the glory of Christ, and God had affirmed their confession. They believed he was the Christ, and the Father had said, yes, this is my chosen one, my son, listen to him. 
But down below, it's not this scene of, of faith. It's a scene that is plagued by unbelief. On the mountain, God's son is glorious. But down below, this man's son is suffering absolute devastation. The contrast is, is stark. And you almost get a bit of whiplash reading through the transfiguration and then this awful, horrific scene at the bottom of the mountain. Verse 37 tells us there's a crowd gathered there, as usual. The rest of the disciples were there, the other nine. There's also interested observers that are always present, people that are curious. They want to see what Jesus is going to do next, want to hear what he's going to say. The Gospel of Mark tells us there's also hostile adversaries, the scribes and the Pharisees, people that were criticizing him, people that were watching him, people that were even there arguing with the disciples. And then there's also the desperate who have come as well, those who have come with their urgent need. We see this man in verse 38. Behold, Luke says, he draws our attention. It's like the spotlight zooms in. A man from the crowd cries out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. There is a crowd there. There are his followers, his, his disciples. His enemies are also present. But as Jesus often does, Jesus sees the individual. Jesus recognizes one man among many, perhaps thousands that were there. And he sees him and he listens to him. This man is desperate. We see that he cries out, verse 38, and he begs for help. Two times we see the word beg. He begs Jesus for help. And he says, I already begged the disciples. You see here this man's desperation. And we quickly learn why his only child, his son, is suffering. This is now the third time that Luke has pointed out that Jesus ministers to an only child. The widow at Nain back in chapter 7 had lost her only son. And in chapter 8, uh, Jesus ministers to Jairus, whose only daughter had died. There's two children that Jesus has raised from the dead that were onlys. You almost wonder if Jesus has a soft spot for the only begotten. It's like there's a theme going on here that keeps getting pointed out. And this crisis is pretty severe. We see a description of it in verse 39. And even though Luke is a doctor, even though Luke is very skilled medicinally, Luke draws our attention to the spiritual aspect of what's going on. There's a spiritual enemy that's causing intense suffering, afflicting this child with epileptic-type symptoms. This text is not teaching that epilepsy is always the result of demonic activity. But what he says is that this demon is leveraging those types of things to harm this child. And it's absolutely agonizing, not only for the child, but also for the family. I mean, there's nothing worse. If you're a parent, there's nothing worse than watching your child suffer. The only thing that's worse than watching your child suffer and not being able to do anything about it is when that suffering is caused by the violence of someone else. This is the deepest kind of pain that a parent can go through. I mean, this child is suffering. His father is suffering. He's helpless. It's like his worst nightmare, and he can do nothing to stop it. It's happening right before his eyes. And he says in verse 40 that he begged the disciples to cast it out, but they could not. You see, when he first came, Jesus wasn't there. Peter, James, and John weren't there. They were up on the mountain. There was a different scene going on, this glorious transfiguration. So he asked the disciples for help. But they were unable. And this is actually a failure. If you flip back to the beginning of verse, or chapter 9, look at verse 1. 
At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had sent out the 12. And it says he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. All demons. Yes, this is a particularly bad case, but Jesus had already given them what they needed. He had already provided. And these disciples, I mean, it makes sense that this man asked them for help because they had been out doing it. They had had much success in casting out demons and healing physical illnesses. So he comes and he asks them, but they could not. And this failure is striking because these men had done it before. The issue is not that they don't have the resources. The issue is not that they lacked experience. The problem is that they failed to use what God had given them. Mark's gospel records that later the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast it out. And he tells them, in Mark 9, 29, he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See, the reason that the disciples could not was a failure of faith. Their prayerlessness revealed a lack of spiritual dependence. That's what prayerlessness always says about us. It shows that we really think we can handle it. When I don't pray, it's because underneath all of that is an assumption that my wisdom, my strength, my ingenuity, my resourcefulness, my toughness, my shrewdness, whatever, can probably solve this problem. Such self-reliance, such lack of faith and dependence on Christ, it leads to spiritual failure. Spiritual failure. These disciples, despite their previous successes, in this instance, they'd become just like those doctors that couldn't do anything for the woman with the hemorrhage. Do you remember her, that woman Jesus healed? She had spent all she had seeking medical help, and the doctors could do nothing. They only made it worse. The disciples had become just like them, useless. Jesus has some words for them in verse 41. He rebukes them. He answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He uses the language here of the Old Testament. Jesus diagnoses them with the same heart problem as the children of Israel, that generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. In Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses writes, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Jesus says, you guys are acting just like that generation of Israelites in the wilderness. The people in the wilderness, for example, had seen God's power. They had seen God's miracles in Egypt, the plagues. They saw the Red Sea split in two. That generation in the wilderness, they ate manna from heaven. They drank water from the rock as God miraculously provided for their daily needs. Yet they still did not trust him and they still did not believe in him. Faithless and twisted. Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He says, we've been over this before. I've given you everything you need, and you still aren't relying on me. These disciples had seen a lot. They had seen people raised from the dead. They had seen demons cast out. They'd even cast out demons themselves. They'd seen Jesus calm the storm. They had helped hand out the food to thousands and thousands and thousands of people when one little boy brought his lunch to Jesus. And yet they did not pray. They did not rely on the resources that Christ had given them. They tried to use their own strength and wisdom. Jesus' rebuke is deserved. 
What this shows, this failure shows that their view of Christ was too small and their thoughts of themselves were too high. Jesus does not fault them for their limits. He doesn't fault them for their lack of power. He doesn't fault them for their weakness. He doesn't even fault them for their their failure to cast out the demon. He faults them for their unbelief. That is the issue. And we are no different. On our own, apart from Christ, we are unable We are weak. Our wisdom is insufficient. Our strength is small. Our righteousness, apart from Christ, is like filthy rags. Jesus told his disciples in the book of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. So where's the good news? Well, here it is. What we're seeing here is the glory of Christ in contrast to their failure. That's their failure. But Jesus, on the other hand, will not fail. Jesus is not without power. Jesus will triumph and succeed where they failed. You see, we all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came to fulfill God's law. We all have sinned. We all fall into temptation. But Jesus triumphed over Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way like we are, yet was without sin. We are just branches who are needy. But Jesus is the vine. We are like sheep that have gone astray. But Jesus is the good shepherd. The glory of Christ is seen in contrast to human failure. And so we see this glorious Jesus on the mountain, and then he comes down. And all of a sudden, we see this amazing contrast between him and everyone else. That glory is seen in contrast with human failure as Jesus succeeds where the disciples have failed. There's a second way we see the glory of Christ. Number two, his glory is also seen in his conflict with satanic powers. It's seen in his conflict and his triumph over the enemy. As the boy is brought near, the father's story is shown right there in that moment to be more than accurate. The demonic being senses that it's in the presence of the son of God. And so it makes one last stand. In verse 42, Jesus had said, bring your son here. Verse 42 says, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. This is one last rage-filled effort to destroy, to harm, and to control. And we see this often with demonic spirits in the New Testament. When they're in the presence of Christ, you see this mixture of fear and anger that always boils over because they know who Jesus is and they know what he's able to do to them. And so even though the disciples had failed, even though the father is desperate, even though this boy is on the ground suffering, Jesus acts decisively and effectively. He does three things. First, he rebukes the demon. He rebukes the demon. This is a word of authority. He doesn't ask. He doesn't suggest, he doesn't argue, he doesn't negotiate, he doesn't threaten, he simply rebukes the demon. He commands the evil spirit, and it is immediately banished by the word of Christ. This is a power encounter, a power encounter between a very great power, so great that none of the disciples could handle it, so great the father could do nothing about it, so great the child could not escape it, but this power is no match for the power of Christ. The disciples could not cast it out, but Jesus could. And in Christ's conflict with satanic powers, we see his glory. We see his glory. Ever since the garden, there's been this cosmic conflict between the powers of darkness and the purpose of God, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Satan hates God. He hates God's people. He hates God's word. He hates God's purposes. 
He hates the son of God. He hates the plan of God. He hates the glory of God. And so Satan schemes and works and wars against anything and everything that is reflective of God and his goodness. That's the war. And so as Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, this is a spiritual invasion. Jesus was in enemy territory. And everywhere he went, his presence, as he invaded the domain of darkness and came preaching the good news of the kingdom, everywhere he went, his presence provoked strong reactions from the demonic forces. We saw this earlier in Luke's gospel as Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and a man who's sitting there who appears to have no problems at all, all of a sudden becomes violent and agitated and he cries out and interrupts the sermon. Demons get uncomfortable when Jesus shows up. He smokes them out of hiding. And it seems that his presence even attracts a sort of counter-invasion of sorts, as if the Son of God coming into the world was not unnoticed by the enemy. The enemy goes, I I see that move, and I'm going to counter-move by ramping up our efforts and our activities in the world. And these spiritual forces that Jesus encounters, they're far more powerful than we are. There's nothing this Father could do. There's nothing the disciples could do. There's nothing that, that really people can do about this apart from the power of God. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 where there's these seven sons of a Jewish high priest, holy men, and they're trying to cast out demons. They sort of have this traveling ministry of sorts where they're trying to make a name for themselves, maybe even trying to help people. I don't know their motives. In Acts chapter 19, 13, it says some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. They saw that, okay, those guys are having success. Apparently, there's this formula. Maybe if we use the formula and take the name of Jesus like some good luck charm and say the magic words, maybe we can do this too. But in verse 15 of Acts 19, it says, The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They got beat within an inch of their life because they didn't have the power of Christ. Simply saying the name of Jesus is not some magic spell or potion that you can use to get the results you want in this world. That's not how it works. We see that this demonic power is is incredibly significant. It's strong. People can't deal with that. But when Jesus encounters spiritual adversities and adversaries, Jesus never breaks a sweat. Though there are great and powerful forces at work in the world, they cower at the feet of Christ every time. This is the glory of Christ on display. And this is more than just a theological observation. This, friends, is a call to faith. There is hope in Christ, even when all human effort is exhausted. There is hope in Jesus Christ, in his power, his sufficiency, even when all human effort has been exhausted. When you reach the end of your rope, when there's nothing you can do, when there's nothing that anyone else can do for you, you are never beyond the scope of the power and authority of Christ. His power, his glory is seen in this conflict. I love what the prophet Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God made everything. He owns everything. He rules everything. It's no sweat to him. 
to do whatever it is that he wants to do. Nobody gets in his way. Nobody stops him. Nobody hinders him. It's like the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, nothing will be impossible with God. That's the scope of his power. In Luke 18, 27, Jesus will tell his disciples, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, his greatness and glory is our hope. That's who we trust in. And this glory is seen. In this, in this moment, it's not, it's not the radiance of his glory on the mountain, but it is being displayed in his conflict with satanic powers. So God's glory is seen in Christ in this contrast with human failure. We see the glory of Christ in his conflict with the enemy. There's a third way that Christ's glory is seen in this text. Number three, his glory is seen in his compassion for the suffering. It's seen in his compassion for the suffering. You know how we all love it when somebody who's really a big deal makes time for someone who's not? Like, you love it when the star athlete chats on the sideline with the five-year-old kid who doesn't even know how big of a deal that is and gives him an autograph, maybe gives him his gloves or, you know, signs a shirt or something like that. We love it when there's some celebrity, some movie star who plays a superhero who visits the special needs person in the hospital. Like, we, we love that, right? Because there's greatness that's seen when, when, when someone condescends to minister to someone out of compassion, there's something in that, even in the secular world, that we all like, don't we? There's glory in compassion. Listen, there's no greater condescension. There's no greater display of compassion than Christ. It's Christ. There is compassion that we see here in his deliverance. He sets this boy free from the evil spirit, this evil spirit that would hardly leave him alone. Listen, after Jesus came, never again would this child suffer like that. Never again. We see his compassion here in the deliverance from the demon as he rebukes the demon. We also see his compassion in the healing. He not only rebuked the demon in verse 42, he also healed the boy. This is an undoing of the harm and the destruction caused by this evil spirit. He made this boy whole. This even goes beyond the deliverance. It's not just that he stopped the bad things that were happening to him. He made him physically and spiritually, psychologically whole. This is restoration. It showed compassion. There's also compassion in the third thing that Jesus did as he gave him back to his father. See, Jesus is ministering to that dad. He sees him too. He's expressing his care for this father's agonizing concern. This man had brought his son to Jesus, and now Jesus brings the son back to the father. He gives him back. The boy is now free, he is now healed, he is now whole, which means that the family has been restored. Why does Jesus show all this compassion? Ultimately, it's for one reason. It's because this is who he is. This is his heart. This is his disposition. He is not acting contrary to his nature or contrary to his will. Rather, this is the expression of who he is and what he wants to do, what he likes to do, and what he had planned to come and do. This is the character of Christ. This is his glory on display in his compassion. It's almost impossible for us to even imagine Jesus saying no to this father, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine this father coming and begging Jesus for help, saying, I asked your disciples, they couldn't help me. This is what's happening to my son. Can you please help him? Can you even imagine Jesus going, sorry, not today? 
No, that's absurd. We can't even picture that because that's not who he is. And friends, the compassion of Christ is a manifestation of his glory. It doesn't mean that he is like us, people who feel sympathy and compassion. No, any sympathy and compassion you see in people is a very small little reflection of an eternal and perfect and infinite compassion that has always been in the character of God. He's where it comes from. And we see it displayed here. And it's glorious. This is not something we should overlook. Yes, we're used to Jesus doing things in compassion, putting his hand on a leper, restoring you know, the lame, setting free those who are spiritually oppressed, raising the dead. We see his compassion and his care. I hope you don't get too used to it because there's glory in it. There's glory in it. While Jesus is on a mission and he has 12 disciples that he's got to keep track of, he has compassion on those who come to him with their desperate need. And the people that day, they saw it. They saw his compassion. And if they had eyes to see, they saw glory. There's a fourth way that we see Christ's glory in this text. It's seen not only in the contrast to human failure, we see it not only in his conflict with satanic powers, we see it in his compassion. But finally, we see the glory of Christ in his commitment to the cross. His commitment to the cross. Look in verse 43. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Luke tells us that the people that are there are marveling at what Jesus is doing. This is a major wow moment. Um, the people just saw the failure of the disciples. They just saw the, the boy fall on the ground, and they saw all of the things that the father had said was going on, and then they saw Jesus fix it. They're marveling at what he's doing, but Jesus says, listen, it's what I'm going to do that really deserves your attention. I know you're impressed by this, but wait till you hear why I actually came and what I have planned to do. Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to them about his mission, his destination, something that was unthinkable to them. It was unthinkable to them that the Son of Man, ironically, would be delivered over to men. That this great superior figure would be captured, arrested, put to death. That the one who has all this power over the fiercest and most powerful demons is going to allow himself to be taken by mere humans. I mean, this would have blown their mind. And you might ask the question, why does Jesus change the subject here? Why does he pivot from them marveling at the majesty of God and what he's just done for this child and then say, well, what I really want you to listen to is this. I'm going to be delivered over. Like, why? Why does Jesus shift here? Well, I don't think he's actually changing the subject. I don't think he's changing the focus. Jesus is simply continuing to show compassion. He's shown compassion to the father and to the son. And now he shows compassion on these disciples because Jesus knows what they need. He knows what they need. So this announcement is not some abrupt change in topic from the miracle because that miracle was really a microcosm of the gospel. That miracle was really foreshadowing and illustrating what it is that Jesus came to accomplish. Think about the parallels between what Jesus does for this boy 
and what Jesus would later do at the cross. At the cross, Jesus would achieve victory over satanic powers. That's what was going to happen. Colossians 2, verse 13 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then Paul says, here's what happened at the cross. As our sins were nailed to the cross, Paul says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, these spiritual powers, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus was going to have a final conflict with these powers of darkness, and he was going to triumph. He was going to put them to open shame. He was going to deal with our sin and rescue us from the domain of darkness, transfer us into the kingdom of light. At the cross, Jesus achieved spiritual victory. At the cross, Jesus would also provide healing, not just for physical ailments, but for our deepest problem, our sin. Just like he healed this boy, we too need healing. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. As the King James says, by his stripes, picturing the lashes that would fall across the back of Jesus Christ. It's the bleeding, suffering, dying Lamb of God on the cross that brings healing for our deepest need. The infection of sin that terminal condition that we all suffer from. That's what Jesus came to deal with. At the cross, Jesus would reconcile us to the Father, just as he gives this wounded and struggling boy healing and then gives him back to his Father. Jesus came to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father, to present us to the Father. Listen to Colossians 1.21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus comes down, dies for our sin, cleans us up, and gives us to the Father. That's what Jesus came to do. So he's just healed this boy, and everyone's amazed. Everyone's marveling. And he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man must be delivered over into the hands of men. It's not changing the subject. There's a continuity here. And the one who has compassion on this boy has compassion also on his disciples. And he knows what they need and he wants them to understand the gospel. You see, these men, these disciples, they had failed. These disciples, they were faithless. And these disciples, even here in this text... They are fearful. They're afraid to even ask him. They don't even fully get it. They don't understand, but they're afraid to ask him more. And you know what the solution is for failures, for the faithless, and for the fearful? It's not that they need to do anything. It's not that they need to try harder. It's not that they need to, to make up for their failures. What they needed in that moment was to hear and understand the good news. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. This is what you need right now. You need to understand that I'm not just here to do a few miracles that help people. I came to die. And in Christ's redemptive mission, he would compassionately free all of us from spiritual bondage, compassionately heal 
the spiritual sickness of sin for all who come in faith. That he would, in his compassion and in his power, redeem us, cleanse us, and then restore us to right relationship with our Father. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what these men needed to understand. They needed not to do something in that moment, but rather to understand what Jesus was going to do for them. Perhaps you have this nagging sense this morning that, man, you know, I just don't think I'm doing enough. You have that unsettled feeling that maybe you've just fallen short of what God really expects from you and, and what really you're obligated to do before God. You have this nagging sense that you have failed in some way. Maybe you even know the specific ways you failed. If that's how you feel this morning, I don't want to remove that feeling necessarily. I, I actually want to amplify it. You have failed. You have failed. You have sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. It's true, you haven't done enough. And listen, you can't. You can't do enough to fix yourself and rescue yourself and, and make yourself right with God. You don't have the power. Left to yourself, left to your own efforts, you are hopelessly lost. There's an infinite chasm between you and God, a chasm that's been created by your sin, and you can't cross it. But listen, friend, you are not beyond the reach of Christ. It's because we cannot achieve salvation for ourselves that Jesus came to do it for us. It's the work of Christ on the cross that secures our salvation. We need a savior. We need a sacrifice for sin. We need a substitute who can take our place and pay our debt. We need atonement. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need rescue. And that's exactly what Jesus came to provide. At this moment in time, the disciples didn't fully understand that. They don't get it. It was actually concealed from them to a certain degree. In God's timing, they would one day come to see it clearly. You know, for us sitting here today, the true meaning of Jesus' words, that the Son of Man was going to be delivered over into the hands of men, the true meaning of those words are not concealed. We see more than what the disciples saw on that day. We know what happens next, don't we? And we know why. We have the rest of Luke's gospel. We see his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. We have the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. We have the unpacking of the gospel mysteries in the book of Romans. We have the celebration of the glorious grace of the gospel in Ephesians. We have the rest of the New Testament unpacking the glory of Christ's work in the gospel. So here's the question. Have these words sunk into your ears? Have you embraced the glory of Christ's commitment to the cross? If you're an unbeliever today, if you're lost, if you don't know Jesus and you are still suffering spiritual bondage, you still bear within you that terminal condition of sin and you have not yet been reconciled to the Father, then you need today to recognize your need for Christ and believe. Let these words sink into your ears and believe in Christ. Trust in him. This Jesus, this glorious, powerful, authoritative, compassionate Christ, he went to the cross for sinners like you. He went to the cross in obedience to his father and in love for people like us. God's sovereign plan was to save sinners through the sacrificial death of his son. And that mission has been accomplished. 
And listen, this is the only way. It is only through faith in Christ. It's only through believing in his work that that people who have been devastated by the results of sin can be saved. This is the only way for those who are unable to save themselves. Saving faith looks to the crucified Christ and sees the glory of his sacrifice. He is worthy of your faith. Believe in him. Believe in him. For those of you who have believed, for those of you who would say these words, the word of Christ, the message of grace, the hope of the gospel, they have sunk into my ears and they've sunk into my heart and I believe it. There are truths here today for us to respond to as well. And it's still a response of faith. The glorious Christ is worthy of our faith, not just yesterday, but also today and also tomorrow and the day after that. The faith that we are called to as believers is not the first time faith of trusting in the gospel. It's an ongoing kind of faith that continues to cling to Christ as our only hope. You see, just like the disciples had had previous victories and they'd cast out demons before, but then here they experienced failure, it's possible for us to embrace Christ and to trust in the gospel and then later try to live the Christian life in our own strength. Not that we can lose our salvation, but sometimes we run into this brick wall and it's because we're doing things on our own. We're not continuing to rely on Christ. So what will keep us from that kind of failure? What will keep us from relying on ourselves? Two things. First of all, I think we can follow the example here in this text. We need to marvel at his majesty. They were all astonished at the majesty of God in verse 43. They were marveling, verse 43. Listen, believer, in the person and work of Christ, we need to see the majesty of God, the glory of God on display. And it should take our breath away. It should pull our focus away from self. It should pull our love away from self. And it should orient everything in us towards Christ when we see his glory in the gospel. We should marvel not only that he possesses possesses such power, but that he would use that power on our behalf, that he would use that power to save us, that his compassion would direct his heart towards our sin and to alleviate our eternal suffering in hell that he would rescue us from that, that should cause us to to marvel. Listen, we have never, as Christians, we have never had thoughts of Christ that reach the fullness of how great he actually is. Have you thought about that? That your thoughts of Christ are not yet what they should be? That whatever the farthest reaches of your imagination can do, that you aren't there yet. You may have great doctrine. You may have walked with Christ for many years, But listen, there is more. There is more of him to see, more of him to know, more of him to marvel at, more of him that calls for our trust and our reliance. So as you marvel at him, secondly, we need to learn to rely on him, rely on him. Friends, prayerful dependence is the only way. If he is so much stronger than us, if he really succeeds where we fail, if he's really the one with absolute power over the enemy, if he is really this compassionate, then why would we not pray? Why would we not ask him for help? Why do we try to do life on our own, in our own strength? Listen, the glory of Christ seen in this text calls us to faith. And these truths ought not to not only cause us to marvel, they also ought to lead us into frequent and fervent prayer as we constantly rely on him. 
Jesus is far greater than we even realize. No matter how high our thoughts of him, no matter how long we've walked with him, our best and highest thoughts of Christ, they fall short. And friends, this is not a rebuke. You're not being scolded. This is rather an invitation to behold the glory of Christ, see him for who he is, believe, marvel, rejoice, because the glorious Christ is worthy of our faith. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have not seen as much of you as there is to see. We've not seen the glory on the mountain with our own eyes. And even when we consider your power over the enemy, your compassion, the glory of your gospel, we recognize, Lord, that we've only swam in the shallow end of that pool. So we do pray that, Lord Jesus, you would take us deeper, that you would give us eyes to see, that our ears would be open so that your words would sink into our hearts. And Lord, draw out of us the faith that you desire to see. We confess our weakness and our failures, our self-reliance. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us to keep trusting in you, cause us to marvel at your sufficiency. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.